Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 28 of the 2017-2018 curling season. This week we put a wrap on a 2018 Olympic curling competition. We are joined by Phil Drobnik, the coach of the Olympic champions Team Schuster. Cheryl Bernard joins us for our final Inside the Ring segment as we look back at Team Homan's Olympic experience. Nolan Thiessen of Curling Canada joins us to address some of the topics that have emerged as a result of Canada missing the podium in both the men's and women's events in Pyeongchang. And with the Briar less than a week away, we are joined by Skip Mike Fernie of Quebec, Skip Brendan Botcher of Alberta, and Brett Gallant, the second for Team Canada. All that and more, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. I think it's fair to say that the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang will come to be viewed as a seminal moment for the sport of curling. Team Hasselberg may have won the gold medal for Sweden in the women's event, but the performance by Eunjun Kim and her team from South Korea, winning a silver medal in front of a home crowd, will no doubt lead to a tremendous growth in the sport in South Korea and other parts of Asia. While the bronze medal victory by Team Fujisawa of Japan will no doubt also have an impact on the sport in that country. The result in the men's event was no less important. The victory by Team Schuster of the United States against the heavily favored Team Adina of Sweden will have a significant impact on the growth of the sport in the U.S. Phil Drobnik, coach of Team Schuster, joined us to discuss the team's gold medal performance in Pyeongchang. Coach Phil, it's been a few days now. Has it finally started to sink in that you are the coach of the Olympic Championship? Yeah, it really has. You know, we had a lot of reflection time on the plane uh, yesterday and um, the welcome that this team got from the time we got to the airport in Korea until um, I got home, it was it was 31 hours of travel, and uh, and by the time I got home, and I know they they went their way, um, was just uh, like they they lived the day of a rock star. It was, um, yeah, the the people are so excited. Um, every one of us got uh, police escorts uh, home with uh, you know uh, 10 to 15 police cars um, blocking off the highways for us. It was it was pretty special to see the. Uh, people at the Duluth Airport and the Minneapolis Airport and the Detroit Airport just waiting and welcoming and cheering and yeah, it's it's been it's it's set it set in for sure yesterday. I want to start by taking you back to the Olympic finals, specifically in the eighth end of the final, when John Schuster made a double takeout for five to take a 10-5 lead in the game. It looked like a relatively easy double takeout for a player of John's skill level, but for those in our audience who might be relatively new to the sport, can you share how difficult a shot like that may be, considering the circumstances and everything that was on the line, if he actually made that shot? Yeah, I was thinking um, as I'm sitting on the bench uh, and and their rock comes to let, to rest. I looked at it and I think all three, uh, myself and, and Joe Polo, um, who we do mainly the talking with while while I'm on the bench, and and you know Derek Brown's there too, but he's doing a lot of the stats and the filming. But um, I looked, uh, I, I just said out loud, I was like, okay, just breathe, go through your processes, and just breathe, and. Uh, you know, and then I, I said it a couple more times, and Joe said, "Are you saying that for yourself, or are you saying that for them?" And I said, "I think both." But um, yeah, it was the process for that shot was 
everything that we've practiced in a high-pressure situation, when the game's on the line, they did it perfectly. They didn't rush it. They talked about what they needed to do. Um, they communicated the whole way down the sheet. And, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy shot with, the, with everything riding on it, uh, but they made it look like it was an easy shot. It was a shot that they've thrown a million times at their club and, um, in practice, and, and that's how they made it look. So it was, uh, I think it was definitely the, the, the highest I've ever jumped off the bench when, uh, when we've made a shot uh, since we're not supposed to be cheering on the bench. But uh, it was a pretty, pretty cool moment. It's been quite a journey for John and his team, and you've been around the team for a good part of that journey as their coach. Can you share what went through your mind when the Swedes decided to concede the win and Team Schuster had officially become Olympic champions? Just so proud of these guys, and, um, you know, these when these guys, I started with them in, in, uh, in about, um, you know, February of 2015, and, um, and I've been with them ever since, and... Uh, They've worked so hard and they've been through so much. And, you know, John himself uh, and, and just so rewarding for them. And uh, it's, we, I said to them before the game, um, I, I asked them the date. And, uh, and none of them really knew because, you know, we've been, we've been kind of, uh, you know, in a blur when you're, when you're in Olympic Village and you don't know what day it is or the date. And I said, today is February 24th, 2018. Today, curling is going to change forever, and you're going to be a part of history, so you'll never forget that date. And um, it's true. The game of curling in the, uh, is going to change not just in our country but around the world, um, uh, but especially in the U.S. People are, are just jumping on the bandwagon. It's going to grow the sport, and that's, that's the kind of guys these, these guys are. Is they're ambassadors to the game, and they're, they're really, really good at um, – you know, given back to the game that they love. I want to go back to the round robin for a few moments. Let's first go back to the game versus Norway when the team was 2-3 and three and not playing particularly well against the Norwegians. It became obvious during that game that the team wasn't happy and tension was rising a little between the members of the team. What did you as a team do between the Norwegian and Canadian games to get the guys back in a more positive frame of mind? Because it could have really started going sideways at that point. You know, we had our best. Uh, uh, we had one of our best meetings after that uh, Norway game, as you could possibly have after being two and four. You know, we um, John was obviously um, pretty upset and with himself and about his play and in a tough spot as 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 a player, as an athlete. Um, and the team, just uh, team, the coaches, the team around the team, you know, supported him, told him you know, how much we believed in him and trusted him. And, um, you know, the team talked about how much we want to trust the processes. We felt going into this games, and I think I told you that, that um, we were the best mentally and physically prepared team that, that, that the U.S. has ever sent, and we felt like we were the best going into the event. Um, and uh, and we, we just needed to trust that process, and the guys all believed in John. They believed in each other. And, um, you know, after that meeting, John did some some of his own soul searching, um, you know, and and he's told that story a number of times uh, in in the media. But um, you know, he decided at that point that he didn't want to have his uh, his Olympic uh, um, story defined uh, the way it had had been, and he wanted to change that. And he was able to change that with because he had so much support around him from family members to the team to the coaches. Everybody believed in him, and uh, the guys. Uh, when we came to the to the office or to the meeting on uh, on Tuesday, we said that um, we have an absolute perfect opportunity. We're still in the bond spiel. 
we still have a chance to make the playoffs, and we get a chance to play the best team in the world to do this. And if you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. And that's absolutely what these guys did. They took advantage of that opportunity by beating Canada, by beating uh, Switzerland, going and beating Great Britain, Canada again, and Sweden. They took down the the, the top five, uh, five, four or five teams in the in the world to to become the best. John was emotional following the round robin victory over Canada. Was there a small part of you as a team coach? Uh, at that point, that might have been concerned that the team might be emotionally spent after that victory over Canada with two important Ron Robin games left and a playoff spot still very much in play. In many cases, you would think that, but because uh, we've had the opportunity to play in three world championships prior to, to this event, and we've been we've had our back against the wall, and um, we've one of our systems is we take it one game at a time, and after the after a game. We, we, we leave that one and go to the next. So we know going into our next pregame meeting that these guys are able to do that. We had fortunately had like a, 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 almost a, a full day off till we went and played Switzerland. So that kind of gave the guys a chance to decompress and refocus. That's the one great thing about the Olympics is you got a little time. It's not like we were going right back on the ice three hours later. So the schedule helped out. And um, uh, I knew that these guys, their goal wasn't just to beat Canada, right? That wasn't the goal. Their goal was to, to get to the playoffs in the first goal. So they never lost sight of that. And um, and they came out against Switzerland and just, just dominated them. Before talking big picture with you in a moment, uh, can you touch on the mixed doubles event where Matt and Becca Hamilton had some difficulties and did not reach the playoffs despite being viewed as a medal threat going into the Olympics? Was this simply a case of Matt and Becca simply having a rough week at the wrong time? Yeah, I think it. I think that's the case for for Matt and Becca. They they got off to a great start, won the first game, um, lost a, a tight one to Johnny Moe and, and Caitlin, and um, and then just kind of couldn't get the ball rolling. You know, they they there was obviously some systems that weren't in place for them, just in terms of um, you know they're used to always being around their full teams, and um, even though they've played mixed doubles, it the, the Olympics is so much of a different animal. Um, than than anything else, and um, you know, is there both their first times at an Olympics, and um, you know, it's a tough stage, and and it's a quick event with there only being eight teams, and um, you know, they 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 just didn't uh, they just had a didn't have their best week, you know, numbers wise, they were right up there. Uh, ironically, you know, you compare their numbers and stats, and I think they were in the top three in their as in their genders um, out of the eight. Um, and, uh, you know, just maybe didn't make the right ones that, that needed to be made, um, which was really unfortunate because they're both uh, both great players, and, and uh, um, definitely if it was played over again, they would have, they could have could have been uh, in in medal contention. I also want to touch on Team Roth, who were in the playoff mix in the women's event until the end, but couldn't seem to find any consistency during the week. Yeah, up and down. Um, they had some really, really good games and some, some tough games um, that they had uh, – you know, and um, just didn't seem to get to, to find their uh, their flow like they had in in a number of events throughout uh, throughout the season. I mean, here they are; they were one game away from. Uh, I mean, tied up coming to the last end. If they if they if they win their last game of the round robin, they're they're playing uh, they're playing Japan in a tiebreaker. So um, they were in it right till the end. It was a bummer to see them to see them just nearly narrowly missed the playoffs. I know they wish they had a couple games back that they, they lost early in the week. Um, that would have changed that. But, um, yeah, dis- disappointing for them it was. Uh, 
you know, to, to work so hard and get so close and just narrowly miss it. But uh, uh, no no doubt they'll be back and, um, you know, they're going to be uh, re- re-energized just to be able to see um, the impact that John's team has for them to be able to be there and witness that is only going to, you know, drive them even harder. Obviously, there's a lot of buzz now in the U.S. surrounding Team Schuster. And as someone who's been around the U.S. curling program for a while now, how might USA Curling best be able to leverage the team's success to help grow the sport while their victory is quote-unquote top of mind and also help propel curling to that next level in the U.S.? You know, we've got great ambassadors, and, um, you know, we've got to take advantage of these opportunities that these guys uh, are going to have just to get out there nationally because the one thing that the that, that USA Curling needs and the program needs is is some sponsors and some funds and, um, you know, money uh, is is a lot more prevalent uh, um, north of the border for for sponsorship for teams, and and even in other places in the world than it is in the U.S. Um, no teams have really been able to nail down big sponsors. So um, that's 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 always a key. Money's a key um, to anything. You know, if 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 we could get to a point where these guys could be full time athletes and not have to worry about those small jobs it makes even a bigger impact um, to have more success on different levels. And all of a sudden, um, you know, your teams are competing at, for a championship at every world in every gender. So I think, I think that's one, one main thing. And these guys are great at, at selling the game and selling themselves. So um, that, that we need to take sure. Uh, one thing we did do, um, and I don't know, uh, I think it went public today, uh, is that the team did drop out of the, the U.S. Nationals, which was supposed to start on, uh, on Saturday. They were scheduled to be playing in the in the national Saturday, and um, as a team, we decided uh, that 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 wasn't the best thing. They're 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 fried. They're they're um, it, it was it was a long month for them, and uh, we want them to be able to enjoy this ride and take advantage of these opportunities. They're going to be flying all over the country to uh, to tell their stories. So um, so they they pulled out of that, and, and instead of going to the worlds in Vegas to compete, they'll be going there. Um, and, and Vegas will be honoring them and, and you know, having a celebration to, uh, to, for them as well, which is it's just as great because they'll be there to also help to grow, um, get new people interested, uh, you know, in a state that, uh, you know, can help to, to grow the game too. So um, that's the first thing. And then, you know, the second thing uh, for for this is, is going to be that, that they continue to give back as, uh, and, and, you know, to junior curlers to um, motivate other people to get involved because um, if we can get a strong junior system throughout the country and and kids right now are are just loving these guys loving curling so we need to make sure we take advantage of that and and do the right things to continue to motivate the younger generation to curl and finally, Phil, I want to start my last question with a golf analogy. Going back 10 or 15 years when Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson were dominating golf, it often happened that a solid top 10 or top 15 player would break through at a major event such as a Masters like Canada's Mike Weir did one year. And then for a while, casual golfing fans in Canada expected Mike to win every tournament he entered and were disappointed when he didn't. How are you going to work with Team Schuster now to not only help temper their expectations, but prepare them for the fallout if they ever go a few events and don't perform at the level they reached in Korea? Now, I'm guessing that the fact that there is a limited number of events left this season might help you with that. 
Yeah, I think, you know, these guys are, are, are smart enough uh, athletes to know, um, you know, we've got two events for the rest of the season, the Elite Ten and, uh, and, the, and, and I think likely the Players' Championships, although I don't think the invites came out yet. But, um, you know, those, with those two events, you know darn well that um, you could easily go to a slam and, and, and not win um, a game. It, it happens to the best in the world. So um, these guys are pretty understanding of that. Um, you know, the one thing we're going to talk about before they go back out on the ice is to just enjoy themselves. Um, you know, when the, the one thing about this team that I, I don't see in maybe a lot of other teams is they have a lot of fun together, and they enjoy their time on the ice. When they're doing that, they're winning. So enjoying their time on the ice going forward is going to be the key message. Uh, have fun with each other. And, you know, you guys are Olympic gold medalists, so whatever happens in the next two events, just go out and have fun with your friends because that's where it started, and uh, we don't want to change that. And uh, you're right, we are fortunate it's the end of the season, and um, they're going to have a summer to kind of decompress and realize what they just did and uh, how they um, motivated a nation to uh, to get behind them and support them in curling. So, um yeah, that's the. I mean, the only message I'll be sending them is to just to just have fun and enjoy the ride and and enjoy being on the ice two more times as a team um, for the rest of the season. The news was obviously not as great for the Canadian men's and women's teams. Team Cooey qualified for the semifinals in the men's event where they lost to the U.S. and then lost the bronze medal game to Switzerland. As for Team Homan, they struggled from the outset and started the round robin at 0-3. They fought back gamely but were never able to fully turn the page on their bad start and ended the round robin with a record of 4-5 and and failed to qualify for the playoffs. In our final Inside the Ring segment, Cheryl Bernard joined my co-host Glory St. George and I to take a look back at Team Homan's Olympics. We talk about the Denmark game, the infamous Sheet A, as well as other topics with Bernard, who served as the alternate for Team Homan at the Olympics. First and foremost, I think many Canadians would simply like to know how Rachel, Emma, Joanne and Lisa are doing and have they been dealing with the early ending to their Olympic journey. For many athletes, their Olympic experience is based on their own expectations going in and, of course, in part, our country's expectations on them as well. And I think one of the best examples of this was one of our Team Canada athletes. It was Mike Riddle. He had finished sixth in the halfpipe. And I think it was last Thursday when he did that. And he was beaming. He was so proud and happy about his results and about being an Olympian. And he said he was going to have this massive party to celebrate his sixth place finish. So you think of that. Expectations in an event that only comes around, what, twice in a decade are everything. And so I feel that's really what taints a lot of players' Olympic experiences, their expectations going in in their countries. Homan, Kui, they expected to be on the podium for sure, if not a gold medal. And so I hope for both of those teams that it doesn't taint what they did. Um, they're going to be Olympians forever, and uh, they represented our country, and they won one of the toughest events, the trials coming in. You know what? I, I feel like they're going to be okay, though. I feel like they're very strong women, and, and I witnessed firsthand, and I know that they left every bit of themselves out on that ice. And you know what? In sports, sometimes things don't go your way. Um, Those losses, they make the wins even more incredible. And that's why many of us play and watch sport for the highs and for the lows. 
So just based on who they have surrounding them and their support systems and their maturity as athletes, I think they'll do just fine. You were on the inside of the team home and bubble in Pyeongchang. You saw them practice at the arena and you had a front row seat from the start of the round robin. Were there any early signs that there might be trouble brewing either with ice conditions, rocks or anything else? You know what? I watched this team, this team that was perfectly prepared going in. Uh, you know, we all know they take pride in their craft and they're relentless in their work ethic. So in the answer to that question, I didn't see any early signs um, and wasn't concerned at all, even after their first loss. Uh, I, you know, I feel like uh, that first game, nobody was beating Korea. It was, and, and honestly, through that week, watching Korea play, nobody was going to beat them. And that wasn't even a favorite in that field. The, the women's field for this Olympics was, there was a lot more parity in the field. And, uh, you know, I, I think you could have picked probably four or five teams that were going to win the gold medal. You know, the second loss became, I think, a little bit of an issue uh, from a pressure point. Because now you're 0-2. Uh, you start to try a little harder. You attempt to make more shots rather than just throw the shots. Um, so I could kind of see the pressure in the throws maybe after the second loss. The third loss, again, same thing. You're just starting to try more and you're not throwing shots. And you're playing in this big Olympic animal and you're in a bubble. And so I, I, I did... Um, become concerned after the second loss that the pressure was going to be difficult for them. The game versus Denmark is when things really seem to hit bottom for Team Home, and uh, there seemed to be a sense of urgency on the faces of the players uh, during that game. Was there, in fact, a sense of urgency building within the team, which may have caused them to press a little bit against Denmark, or was a game against the Danes just one of those games that happens, and it was amplified because it was at the Olympics, and the team had lost its first two games? You know what, and this team... They had a good discussion before going into that Denmark game about just enjoying the moment out there, um, trying to take the pressure off themselves, that this was sport and they were Olympians and, you know, all those things and all those cues, trying to go back to simplifying the game a little bit and focusing on the process all the things we're told as athletes to do. And I was proud because I thought they did that. Uh, Denmark came up with some great shots. We had a couple not go our way. And again, you know, that's going to happen in sport. And so that was a disappointing loss for the team. I know that was a struggle for them. And then trying to regroup after that. So how deep did Tim Holman have to dig after the game against the Danes to work their way back onto the playoff mix? So now we go... They're 0-3, and, and, and they're struggling uh, dealing with that. I think that's the, the, there's no uh, Team Canada curling team that's gone in and uh, had thought about how they would handle a situation being 0-3 to start. Um, pretty tough, and the men were at that point, I think, 4-0. So we're seeing them sailing along, and we can't really understand um, how we ended up at 0-3, to be honest. Uh, but I, you know what I really saw with this team is they turned towards each other for some internal support. Uh, these girls have won and lost so much together, and they knew what to do and what to say to each other. Um, and those conversations are never easy, but I really believe that's what got themselves back on track. They, they actually turned inward, inward inside each of themselves and towards each other as a team, and really talked about, again, why they play this game. And they came up that next game, those next three losses, or wins, sorry, in a row, and they showed up. And they looked like they were enjoying it out there, and that's what was so impressive to me. 
Team Holman lost its three games on sheet A during the run-robin. What was it about that sheet that was giving the team such difficulties, and why was the team not able to adjust to the conditions on that sheet? Yes, sheet A was definitely uh, our nemesis. You know, Hans, I talked to Hans on the sheet because one side, closest to the fans, curled hard. It was almost uncontrollable. And he said that he couldn't get the temperature down on that side of the sheet. It had a higher temperature. So it was tricky, and it curled way harder than the non-fan side. And so it's completely two different throws from one side of the sheet to the other. And unfortunately, we were there on there for three of our first five games. And it wasn't a sheet that was easy to map. Now, lots of people are going to say other teams won on it, and yes, they did. One of the things that I might look at in the future is the possibility that our Canadian teams, maybe we get our ice, maybe it's just too good. And so when situations come up that we're either dealing with tricky rocks or a tricky sheet of ice, I'm not sure we're groomed to deal with that like we used to be. <laughs> and I don't mean to go back to the old days, but we used to never get access to arena ice like they do now. Um, and, and I remember getting better and better as a player with the more of the opportunity I got to play on arena ice as years went by. Because we used to play on straight ice at a club, and then we'd go to arena ice and it would swing. Then we'd go back to straight ice on a club, or it'd be heavy or patchy. And so I really think that that was a bonus for us as players because we learned how to adapt and call a game based on the ice that was presented to us. And I'm not sure that our Canadian teams have that um, ability as much anymore because we get such exceptional ice. And teams from other countries, they don't get access to that ice as much. So that could be something um, that maybe we need to look at. And then added into the mix, the rocks were retouched halfway through the event. And now it's back to learning the rocks again combined with ice that was a little bit patchy or tricky. And, uh, and you saw both the men and the women struggle with that. You saw Mark Kennedy, I think for the first six or seven games, he never missed a shot. And then he started to struggle after that. So just... Those things that maybe, you know, everybody's playing on the ice. I, I get that, and that's all fair, but maybe it's more of how Team Canada uh, learns how to deal with trickier ice conditions. The final round-robin game had no playoff implications for Team Holman, who had already been eliminated, and OAR took a 4 nothing lead after one end. The team could have easily mailed it in at that point. How impressed and proud were you of the character that Team Holman showed during that game to keep playing hard and coming back to win it in the 10th end? The game against uh, Russia, the final round Robin game, I, I, uh, you know, I have immense and had immense respect for that team, for Team Holman already, uh, but watching them dig deep through that game after giving up a four in the very first end... Uh, It, that was that that win was immense for them as a team and I think it was just the pride they took in winning that game digging deep when it was meaningless that those are impossible games to play I know I've played them before and you never want to just go out there as the favorite playing against a team like Russia who has nothing to lose and they're just going to leave everything out there but I watched the girls after that first end they wanted to be proud and they wanted to show Canada that uh, they were team Holman and they did and that made me uh, very impressed and, and proud to um, be part of their team. Do you think this experience will make Team Holman stronger moving forward or do you feel like it might take a while for them to fully recover from the experience? You know, I think I think it's a tough it's tough to recover from the Olympic Games whether you win or lose coming out of them. I remember I honestly it was a month before I really went out in public. It was 
there's a combination of a lot of things leaving in the Olympics. You just finished focusing for four years on representing your country at these Olympics and it's over. And it's kind of that lost feeling when you step off the plane at home in Canada and you're like, what is my focus now? What, what am I doing? Who am I? It's, it's much bigger than just whether you come from the Olympics with a gold medal, a silver medal, a bronze or none. But I think uh, watching Team Holman's family that surrounded them at the Olympics, who I got to know a lot better, um, these girls will be fine. They have an incredible support, support system with family and friends. Their internal support system with the four of them is amazing. And their maturity as athletes. And I think that they're going to recover from this easily. They're going to learn from this. You know, my dad, the best quote I told you that years ago said, you either win or you learn. And, um, you know, and I'll say this. If someone told me they were going right now to represent Canada at, our, at the Olympics, I would be ecstatic. Um, and I would know that we had this. So uh, I hope Canada realizes that. This was uh, just a week. It was sport and things didn't work out the way they hoped. And they came up against some incredibly hot teams. Canada has a target on its back. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm proud. I'm very proud of this team. And finally, Cheryl, there's been a lot of talk in the past week or so about the Canadian trials process, with many suggesting that the Canadian Olympic curling team should be selected earlier. Do you think Canada's Olympic curling teams would be better served if the trials were held earlier in the year or even the previous spring? Did the tight turnaround from the trials in December to the Games in February impact your team in 2010, and did it seem to impact Team Holman in 2018? You know, in answer to this question, we were asked after 2010 as a team um, if we had any suggestions back to Curling Canada or the CCA at the time um, regarding anything from the Olympics prep, the team, the extended team that we were given. And one of the key things that we all talked about was the tight turnaround time. Um, and we didn't travel halfway across the world to play. We went to Vancouver. Uh, but it is incredibly Tight. Um, you win first time to an Olympics, the media goes crazy, you're asked to go to events, they turn your phone off because you can't handle the amount of phone calls you get, and they're forwarded, your phone is now forwarded to a media attache. Um, so many things happen. You're practicing, you're trying to get a break with your family, you're trying to come to grips with winning an Olympic trials and how this is changing your life, and it is immense. Now, nothing was really done, I think, with that because we had won. Uh, you know, it's the old adage, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So then the next season, again, both of our teams, Jacobs and Jones, they go in and they win. Jacobs started off a little uh, slow in that. Jones, I think, is probably one of the most experienced teams in dealing with pressure and going, uh, you know, halfway around the world to play. So I would have given them a, a really good chance at this. But I still feel, because two things have happened, the other countries are naming their uh, teams earlier, they're prepping their teams longer, and these teams go in rested and ready. You know, the... the the pressure, or I wouldn't even say pressure, but probably the Olympic experience moments have worn off because they were named sooner to the game. And so I, I would look at that. In fact, I, I, I think that's probably one of the biggest things going forward that I would look at as a team is could we look at identifying our Team Canada early, maybe April. Then you get the summer, you get a lot of time to digest, you get a lot of time for the send-offs and the moments, and then maybe two months before the games, you kind of shut down, 
hole up and you focus on Olympics and that's it. And the media has eased up because you've given them everything they need. Family and friends have had all their parties and you can just focus on one thing. So, you know, I, I know we have had so much success and I'm not saying that uh, that didn't work. But what I am saying now is because of other countries uh, just getting better and that combined with the fact that they are, you know, they know their, their team earlier and they've prepped longer, that it might be a time to look at it now. As happens any time Canada fails to do as well as expected at the Olympics in either hockey or curling, there have been a few vocal members of the broader curling community in Canada that have brought up a series of talking points over the past several days. World champion and three-time Briar champion Nolan Thiessen, who serves as the Athletes Liaison at Curling Canada, joined us to discuss the possible impact of Canada's results in Korea. Nolan raised many of the points we discussed in the interview in an insightful Facebook post he made on the final day of the Olympic competition. Nolan, outside of mixed doubles, which we will get to in a few minutes, uh, I think it's fair to refer to Canada's results in Pyeongchang as unexpected and a bit of a surprise to many in the larger curling community. As you mentioned in a Facebook post on the weekend, what casual curling fans seem to ignore is that there are a number of teams around the world that are very competitive with Canada's top teams throughout the year on the World Curling Tour, at Grand Slams, and at the World Championships. You've been around these teams quite a bit. What are some of the major differences between the top European and Asian teams in 2018 as, as opposed to back in Vancouver in 2010? Well, I think a couple things. One is that, you know, they come over here and play a lot, and, and you know, they get they play in the Grand Slams, and that's because they're good enough to make it into the Grand Slams, right? They, they earn enough points to get in. They don't just get in because it's like here's Team X who's going to the Olympics, so let's bring them in. They earn their way in, and, and they're in, you know, every single one of the slams, and they play all of our top teams. And it's not necessarily a function of just because they play all the top game teams, but, you know, there's no, I, I think a little bit of the, uh, you know, the intimidation factor maybe of playing Canada isn't there because, you know, when a team has went out and played uh, Kevin Cooley or Brad Gushu or whoever six or seven or eight times, well, then it's, you know, they've played Brad before. And so they know when they're playing in the World Championships or they've played Kevin and they're playing in the Olympics, there's things that are different because it's the Olympics, but then it's also it's just a curling game, and they've played Kevin Cooey before. So, and the other thing, as I as I said, um, you referenced to the post that I made, and you know what these these teams are taking it professionally, and they're trying to they're properly setting their expectations. Um, you know, Nicholas Adine's team probably as soon as they left Vancouver in 2010, pretty young uh, young guys, first experience, they lost the bronze medal game. And they sat back, and I think they they probably said, we want to be the best team in the world. They never said we want to be the best team in Sweden. They knew they were probably could be the best team in Sweden, and, and they'd get to go to X number of world championships and Europeans and all that stuff. But Nicholas's goals were, I want to win the world championships, I want to win Grand Slams, and I want to win the Olympics. And, and sure, he didn't win here, but, I mean, they, they put everything into their craft to be the best in the world. No longer is it just good enough to just say, I'm going to go to the world championships, and, you know, let's hope I... I, I beat Canada once in a while. They're there to win, and lots of teams are like that now, and that's a good thing because it used to be, you know, when we'd go to these world championships, and more or less it was Canada's, Canada really would have had to mess up to not win, and that's not the case anymore, and that's a good thing for our sport. We've wanted it forever. We've wanted parity. We want it to matter when we get, when people are wearing the Maple Leafs, and, and the Maple Leafs heavy, and it's going to be, always be a target, but 
these other teams have, have improved, and our teams have improved too, but it, it's more of a you know fair fight for sure now. It seems to happen each time Canada has a disappointing uh, result in either hockey or curling at an event like the Olympics. There has been a push to change the Canadian system due to the results in Korea. Uh, that being said, the other countries might be getting better and they might be catching up to Canada in curling, but it's important to keep in mind that Canada was represented by the reigning world champions in the women's event and by the 2016 world champions in the men's event. Could it be as simple as two very, very good Canadian teams simply having bad weeks in Korea in an era where Canadian teams can no longer challenge for a title if they aren't playing at their best? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, can't look at Rachel Holman and Kevin Cooey's team and say we sent the wrong team. I mean, I when when I put it into terms in, ter- in terms of what you know I've been through as an athlete before the twenty four two two weeks before the twenty fourteen trials, the very last event before the twenty fourteen trials was a Grand Slam with all the teams that were at the trials plus a few, and we won the slam. And then two weeks later, we lost our first five games at the trials. And so, you know, a lot of the times, they say this about our trials, is that you could run the trials, you know, five straight weeks and have five different winners, and the same thing could be said about the Olympics. And unfortunately, it came up snake eyes for our two teams and that they didn't do it. And to me, you know, the game comes down to so many little things. And, you know, our trials are like that. They come down to one shot here or there that matters. And when we used to go out and play in the World Championships, there used to be probably three times a game that you could you could make the shot to stick the nail in the coffin. And that's not the case anymore. And, you know, people are – some people – it's sports nowadays, right? Everybody's got to take. Everybody wants to say, you know, it's outrage culture for, for sports. And that's fine. That means that they're watching and paying attention and they're, they're following our sport. But, you know – people being outraged because Kevin Cooey didn't win the Olympic gold medal. I mean, he missed the draw in the eighth end and gave up a steal of two. If he makes that draw, he's probably a 65 70% chance of winning that game, and then he's in the gold medal game. Then, what, then what's the, the optics, right? It's, sometimes it's those little things, that one little shot that you, that you make or miss that creates the narrative. And, you know, the fact that both of our teams had probably a couple bad games when they didn't want to and, and – it was the worst time, for, obviously, for them to have it. But, you know, it's just created a narrative that probably isn't true. Does that mean that Curling Canada doesn't need to sit back and really reassess? Well, of course they do. Anytime win or lose, I mean, if you're, if you're not learning, you're, you're not getting better and someone's going to pass you. So, you know, Curling Canada will reassess everything and they'll look at everything. And, and I don't think that they're going to try to reinvent the wheel. They're not going to sit back and say, okay, we're going to pick the four best players and put them together, and you guys are our Olympic team, you get all of our money for the next four years. That's not how, you know, the team dynamics of our sport work. So, but to say that they're not going to sit back and really assess and see, you know, where we can make the system better, of course they are. Um, You know, of course they're going to try to improve our teams. But, you know, in the end, in four years, we're going to send two really good curling teams to Beijing, and... It's going to come down to nine round robin games and and um, two do or die playoff games. And four years ago we won them, and and this year we didn't. And you know four years ago we were we did we're the best we're the best ever. And then now we're the worst. And you know what? It's just it is what it is. You you're never as good as they say you are when you're at your highest, and you're never as bad as they say you are when you're at your lowest. 
So curling Canada will be fine. There's a lot of amazing curlers in this country, and you know, there's a lot to play for in this sport. We're going to keep attracting a lot of athletes to it, and, and I think uh, some changes will be made, but curling Canada will be, in, will be good. Now, a lot has been made of the Olympic trials process in light of the results in Korea. The general consensus seems to be that the trial should be moved to earlier in the season to give the trials winners more time to prepare for the Games. However, the old adage is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And Canada had won three golds and one silver under a similar process and timeline in both 2010 and 2014. But do you believe that now might be a good time to take a look at the trials process and perhaps change the schedule a little bit? It's easy to point out after the fact. Um, John and Caitlin um, were named to the Mixed Devils Olympic team on January the 7th. And I think they flew out on, you know, I think it was probably February 1st or, or maybe even earlier than that, maybe even the 31st of January, and they won the gold medal. So, I mean, it's, it's a great narrative to say that it's wrong and it needs to be done. I mean, more or less, our Olympic trials have been ran the first week of December for forever, and we were 10 for 10 for medals coming into this year. So, to me, I don't think that's the issue. The one thing that I do, you know, wonder about is that, our Olympic trials are so hard, and, and if you probably talked to Rachel and um, and Kevin's team over the past four years, they never probably talked too much about Korea and what to do in Korea. They talked about winning the trials in Ottawa, right? They knew to not look ahead of that. They can't look ahead of the Olympic trials um, because it's such a stacked field. And, you know... Is, does that play into it? Does the fact that the team who wins the trial, they've never really known that much or known what to expect you know, or, or how to, you know, attack the Olympic Games. But, I mean, like I said earlier, like Kevin missed one draw. And if he makes it, he's probably in the gold medal game. You know, Rachel had – Rachel gave up a steal in, in the extra end of Denmark that, I mean, they might have – if they win that game, they're probably in a tiebreaker. And then who knows what happens, right? Like it's – it's easy to say, well, they, they, we don't give them enough time to prepare. And it's like, well, then how do you explain everything before that? And how do you explain our mixed doubles process? In the end, we're sending unbelievable curling teams. And we only have one team that's in the Maple Leafs. And, and so if anything goes wrong, well, then it is what it is. But um, to me, it's not it's fine. I, I get, like I said, I get it. I follow a lot of sports. I follow a lot more sports than just curling. I get outrage culture, and I get, you know, people wanting to jump off the bridge because uh, curling is in a free fall. I get it. You know what? That's fine. We will welcome you back on the bandwagon when when we win the world championships in a couple weeks or whatever, right? I mean, again, I, I come back to something. When I was an athlete, we won the prior in 2014. Everyone's saying how great we were, and, you know, people sending us messages saying, oh, you know, too bad you guys had a tough week in December, otherwise you guys could have been the Olympic team and all of the stuff. And then we get fourth place at the World Championships and we come home and everybody said, you guys are worse than the junior team. We should stop sending the Briar winner to the world. This is a joke. You guys are terrible. I'm so ashamed that you're a Canadian. And it's like, okay, you're the same people who two weeks ago said we were the best. So it is what it is. Just athletes, you know, in general, we've got to start growing a thick skin to it. All the other sports they do, you know, they're, you know, these athletes, they don't watch the shows where there's two people on TV arguing about sports. 
because they've just got to say something and they just got to say their opinion, and that's fine. That's your opinion, but we're going to keep going on our process to try to be good. So it is what it is. Is it possible, Nolan, that at this point in time, the Olympics may have gotten too important in the sport of curling? I mean, the favorites going into Pyeongchang in the men's event, Team Kui of Canada and Team Adin of Sweden, both showed nerves or at the very least uncharacteristic play at different times during the games. While on the women's side, of the four teams currently ranked in the top five in the world rankings that were at the Olympics, only Sweden won a medal. I mean, Eve Muirhead of Great Britain lost in the bronze medal game against Japan, while Team Holman of Canada and Team Tiranzoni of Switzerland were out of the playoff picture before the final draw of the round robin was even played. It's the Olympic Games. It's always going to be the most important for every sport. Look at Mike Babcock. He's he said that he thinks that his Olympic his two coaching Olympic gold medals mean more to him than winning the Stanley Cup. Every sport has athletes who you know have their worst moment at the Olympic Games, right, or their best moment at the Olympic Games. You have that's the romanticism about sports and the romanticism about the Olympic Games. Um, you know, there's there's always been people forever who have been the number one in their discipline for the years leading up to it, and then something happens and they don't win. Look at, you know, I mean, I'm an Olympic junkie. Look at Dan Jansen from back in the speed skater from the United States who it took him 10 years before he finally went. He kept falling at the Olympics, long-track speed skating, and he was the best in the world by far. Um, you know, look at, I remember there was the, um, the skeleton racer, the, uh, I think her Melissa Hollingsworth in Vancouver. She was she was supposed to win. She didn't win. She was in tears, apologizing to the country because she didn't win. It's not just our sport that puts this much pressure on the Olympics. It just it's a function of that's the Olympic Games. It's always going to be the most pressure. It's always going to be the biggest event. It's how it's who handles it the best and who can you know keep concentrating on their process and not worrying about if I win this game, I'm an Olympic champion. That is going to win. And, like, I don't think you're ever going to reel that back in terms of what the Olympics means to everybody because it's the one time every four years that everybody watches winter sports. And, you know, to me, there's a lot of really amazing things that are happening in curling, and there's a lot of sports that would kill to have the the amount of broadcast coverage and exposure that curlers have. Curlers are on TV all the time. Curling is big deal the broadcasters the fans all those things you go to the olympics and there's people who you only like um you know our short track speed skaters they did amazing in vancouver they did amazing in sochi and and you know they did really good again in in uh, pm chang but we never watched them in between then because it's like not on tv their world championships aren't on tv their world like their world cup series is aren't on TV for us in Canada to watch. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of amazing things that, hap- that are happening in curling, and there's a lot that people are going, that people can be a part of. But to me, the importance of the Olympics, that's never going away, that, and that's not just a function of curling. That's a function of all sports. And finally, Nolan, I wanted to touch on mixed doubles with you. Heading into the inaugural Olympic mixed doubles competition, many hope that moving forward, the teams competing would be quote-unquote mixed doubles specialists, as was the case for most countries in Pyeongchang, except perhaps for Canada and the United States. At the end of the day, it was Canada's Caitlin Laws and John Morris, a team of superior shot makers with a lot of experience in men's and women's play at the elite level that won gold. 
Do you anticipate that the performance by Caitlin and John will now cause more countries to have their elite players from top men's and women's teams play mixed doubles, meaning that the quote-unquote mixed double specialists might be left behind for at least another Olympic cycle? Well, two things. One, I think the rest of the countries, of course, are going to send their best athletes because it's shot-making, right? Every sport is shot-making. We just went through how Kevin Cooley and Rachel Holman's team didn't make enough shots. Mixed doubles is the same. You've got to make shots. And who makes the most shots? The people who put in the effort and the, and train to make the most shots. You know, our te- to think that our teams who are great strategists and, and I mean, and this, this is across the globe, teams that are great strategists and great at the four-person game, to think that they can't figure out the, the two mixed doubles game as well, I mean, they they need to play it. They just need to play it and figure it and figure it out and figure out what what works best for them. Yeah, of course. I think that the rest of the world is going to start sending you know more of their top end talent, letting them play both because it's shot making. So who's who in Sweden is going to make more shots than Oscar Eriksson and Sarah McManus, right? Um, or Nicholas and Ant? Like, of course, those are, that's what they need to send. To me. As, as an athlete and an athlete advisor and an athlete liaison, why would we restrict what our athletes want to do? You know, if an athlete wants to play one or the other or both, more power to them. As long as they have a plan, as long as they have trained properly for both or trained properly for one or the other, you know, if someone says, I'm a mixed double, like John might say, I'm a mixed double specialist. I'm just going to play mixed doubles. Great. If he says, I want to play four-person and mixed doubles, great. Um, I like. I totally understand the whole not sending a team to both at at the, at the Olympics, just because it is such a such a grind that um, it's tough to probably run someone through the the mixed doubles and then and, and winning or not winning a medal and then telling them to to then pick it up with the team. But I mean, to me, it's let's get the best athletes on the ice, whatever way possible, and I think. There will be a tour. We'll start up. I think mixed doubles is going to catch on. It's fast. Um, it's high scoring. There's comebacks. Um, you know, like like I said, it's done in an hour and a half for broadcast purposes. I think mixed doubles is going to be here to stay. You know, with the, the you know generations now that are have probably a little bit of. I mean, nobody wants to sit down and watch a three and a half hour curling game anymore. So to to say, you know, well, we've got a sport, but there's an hour and a half, then people might sit down and watch it. And and plus you have the dynamics of, you know, a two-person team and how they work and who's happy and sad. And one person gets to throw more, but the other person gets to throw the last rock at the end, which is the most important. Like, I mean, it's there's there's tons of theater there. So I think it's, it's going to catch on and there's going to be a tour. And I think you're still going to see people play both and, and players are just going to have to figure out a way to, you know, manage their schedule properly so that they're they're ready for both. And, and I think, you know, probably similar situations are going to happen in four years' time when we're going to have um, our teams are going to be, you know, playing in an Olympic trials and whoever doesn't win is going to go play in the mixed doubles trials a couple of weeks later. With the Briar starting on the weekend, From the Hack continues its series of Briar interviews. Our first guest is veteran Mike Fournier, who will be representing Quebec at his first ever Briar. Mike, you're a veteran of the Tour, and this will be your first Briar. Everyone is thrilled when they qualify for their first Briar, but can you share how special it must be to do it as a veteran who had experienced just about everything at the Quebec Tankard except for winning it? Obviously, it's been a long time coming, so uh, it was pretty It was pretty special. I mean, uh, I- 
uh, it was pretty emotional. It's been a long time that I've been trying. I was trying to count how many Quebec provincials I've been to without winning. And I think it's somewhere in the twenties <laughs> and uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's tough to be curling competitive in Quebec and, you know, people know that you're a competitive curler and they, they say, well, when are you going to win and go to the briar? When are you going to win and go to the briar? Inevitably it becomes a bit of a, you become a bit of a Phil Mickelson or a Sergio Garcia, you know, of being the, the best guy who's never gone to the show, you know, obviously it was a big deal to get that off our, get that off my back or to win and uh, to get to experience this. Your team seemed to have a roller coaster of a provincial championship. Uh, you went 6-0 in the round robin, then 0-3 in the championship pool. Now, we'll talk about the playoffs in a moment, but it must have certainly felt like your team had a glass of cold water thrown in your faces in that championship pool after starting the event so well. It, it wasn't as bad as it sounds, I guess. I mean, we, uh, we started off really strong. We played six nearly flawless games, and uh, we just had that kind of, I think our seventh game was against Desjardins. Uh, you know, who's a team that's that's very Jekyll and Hyde that can be ridiculously good. And against us, they were ridiculously good. And he got up early and then made some circus shots to put a to kill us. So, uh, you know, that was that was our first loss of the week. And then I think we went out and had an uncharacteristically bad game against the young team, uh, the young Robert's team. And then just got smoked by Furlong the next day. You know, I, I, the reality of Quebec Provincials is there's a lot of teams that have a lot of has a lot of have a lot of tour experience that are really solid curlers so we didn't nobody expected to go undefeated for the week it just seemed to, uh, to we had three of our our rough games happen at once but at the end of it all we were six and three and and in the playoffs so we were pretty much where we wanted to be now, in the final, you were matched up against Jean-Michel Menal, who'd been to the Briar five straight times and had likely dashed your own Briar dreams along the way a few times. Now, was it an advantage that you know this team so well, or was there a part of you that was quietly thinking, oh, no, not them again? I don't know. I mean, I, I this, uh, this is the first time I would have played them with this team in a Briar final, I mean, in a, a provincial final. And I, I think we felt pretty good going into the game, actually. We felt pretty confident. We'd beaten them during the round robin. So, yeah, I mean, we knew it could be done. We we knew if we played our game, I think we were, we were going to be in the game. And it was a really tight game. And uh, we, you know what you're going to get with Jean-Michel, right? I mean, I've played him a million times, I think. So, y- you know that you're going to get a solid game. You know they're not going to make mistakes. You know that if they get a lead on you, they're going to be really hard to catch. You know, uh, like we knew what we knew. So, we we're... Yeah. There was nothing unpredictable. There's not a lot of teams at Quebec Provincials that we don't know really well right now. So, How proud were you of the resilience and patience shown by your team in both the semifinal and final, where you stole multiple ends in the back half of both games to win? Yeah, obviously really proud of that. Uh, I mean, especially the semifinal. Like, we went down 7-2, and uh, I, I'm not going to name teams, but a lot of teams down 7-2 pack it in, you know, and, and kind of emotionally check out of the game. And uh, if anything, I mean, it was like going down 7-2 is not a great feeling in a curling game, I can tell you. Uh, and I give a lot of credit to my team for bringing me back that game, you know, and saying, no, Mike, come on, we're staying in this. You know, if we're going to go down, we're going down fighting. You know, we had a really, a lot of really good discussion right after the fourth end when it happened. And, uh, you know, and we, it, we came back and they were a bit sloppy and gave up a quick three right away to us. And uh, it really helped bring us back. And I, I, you felt it, you know, and my team really helped us, you know, our team really stuck together. We were really positive and uh, it's, it's a real credit to the team that, uh, that we stayed in that game uh, and 
when you stay out on the ice and you start making shots, good things happen. Your team might be a little bit of an unknown quantity heading into the Briar because it's your first time there as a team. Can you tell us a little bit about each member of your team? Uh, well, if I start with my third, Felix, I mean, he might be familiar to a lot of people in the curling world, just that he's uh, been a dominant figure in Quebec junior curling for the last few years. Like he's won uh, four junior provincials. He's all of 22 or 23 years old. Uh, and the kid's just one of the greatest shot makers I've, I've played with. I mean, he's, uh, that's how he did well in juniors. That's well he's, and that's what's made him a success on our team, too, is he just makes shot after shot after shot. Uh, if anything, we even tried him uh, throwing skips rocks earlier this year, uh, which didn't work out. But, I mean, it's really a function of the fact of saying, wow, this kid is, like, such a shot maker. You know, he, if I go back a few years, it reminds me of, like, a, a David Nedowin or something coming out of juniors, you know, or a guy who just makes shot after shot after shot, and you want him throwing big shots all the time. Seems very uh, immune to pressure and very mature beyond its years. Uh, if I go to our second, uh, William T.O., uh, I mean, and again, they, like he's a guy that hasn't been heard from a lot lately, but he uh, he won Canadian Juniors in 2008 uh, and then took some years off to, to pursue a pro football career. Uh, so an interesting character, but he's an, he's an all-sport athlete kind of guy, right? So... Uh, he's reinvested himself into curling and really gotten back into it over the past few years, and we're seeing the the results of that. I mean, he uh, he was probably the strongest of any of us in terms of how he played at provincials. Uh, outstanding guy, and and the football background helps with the sweeping. <laughs> he's a a horse of a sweeper, so uh, definitely a big addition to the team. And he brings that that football team mentality, I think, to curling, which is uh, a great addition. Uh, my lead is a really interesting guy, uh, a guy named Jean-Francois Tripanier, who's actually only been curling for eight years uh, and came up through Colts. He didn't actually curl junior. But again, when you talk about an all-sport, all-athlete guy, he's played elite-level baseball. He's played uh, elite-level uh, hockey, AAA junior hockey in Quebec. So, I, I mean, the guy is just a pure athlete, and uh, he's thrown himself into curling in the last 45 year, four or five years. He's gotten some great coaching. Yeah, he played a few years with B. Hemmings, actually, uh, skipping. So he's had some great experience and some great training. And he joined the team this year and uh, has just been a great addition to the team. Like I said, it's, really, it's so great to have guys who are, are athletes, even from other sports, playing uh, in that they bring so much to the game and just how they approach, uh, you know, just that competitive sports thinking that they bring to it. And finally, Mike, what will be the keys for your team if you're to make a run at the championship pool in Regina? Well, I think we have to just keep doing a lot of what we were doing in the playoffs at our provincial, you know, which is uh, being tenacious, playing well, uh, making shots. I, we've, uh, uh, like you say, we're we're definitely coming in as an underdog. But uh, having said that, I think, uh, you know, we've been around. We have a fair amount of experience on the tour. We have a fair amount of experience playing big teams. We know how to play those games. So it's going to be up to us to really just execute and make shots and put pressure on other teams. Uh, and like I said, it, it, we have the advantage of having perhaps lower expectations, you know, which, as we can see in the, the Olympics that just finished, that can be an advantage for some teams, you know. So we're hoping we can ride on that and uh, just play as well as we were playing it uh, in the last stage of the provincials, and that should work out for us. Our next guest is Brendan Botcher, whose team will represent Alberta at a second consecutive briar, hoping to improve on last year's 3-8 and record. The Alberta champions have had a solid season, earning one of the two trial spots available at the pre-trials in Summerside in November, and finishing an impressive 4-4, four and four, one game out of the playoffs at the Olympic trials in Ottawa this past December. 
Brendan, as recently as 2015, uh, you would have been the young team that had little to lose in the provincial final playing the more experienced team, Cooey. This year in the provincial final, you were playing the 2018 Alberta Junior Champs team, Sturme. How different of an experience was it for you to be in a provincial final as the favorite veterans? Yeah, you know, it was a pretty, pretty big role reversal. I would say even last year, we went in thinking ourselves to be one of the favorites. Um, which was a complete role reversal because we lost the final to Cooey, we had lost the semifinal to Cooey, and all of a sudden there we were in a provincial in the final, and we were the favorites last year. You just have to approach it a little bit different. I mean, when we were playing Cooey the first time, we really had nothing to lose. We were there just trying to play our best on TV in our first provincial final, and then that pressure sure amps up a little bit when you're when you certainly expect to win yourself and when there's lots of other people that would put you in that category too. I've spoken to both Reed Carruthers and Brad Jacobs uh, in the lead up to this briar who competed at the Olympic trials as you did and also won the provincials. Reed told me that he had some difficulty getting back into the swing of things after the men's and mixed doubles trials, whereas it seemed to have been a bit easier for Brad. How did you regain the energy to play your fourth high stakes event in three months at provincials? following the pre-trials in both the men's and mixed doubles trials? Well, a few things. Number one, we went into the trials with pretty, I think, a really good headspace on what our expectations were. Um, Certainly, I thought we could have won the trials. I thought we were good enough to win. But for us, getting to the trials as a team was a success. And we were just ecstatic to be there, and I thought we played really quite well. So... It wasn't as much of a letdown for us leaving the trials as it might have been for some other teams because I thought we, if anything, outperformed what some others might have had for us as an expectation. For myself personally, it was a pretty quick transition over to the mixed doubles, (laughs) which is a lot of fun, and it's about 180 degrees from what we do four-person men's curling. Uh, So that was a good break. And then I took a couple weeks off in January and went on a little bit of a vacation really only about 10 days before our provincial started. And that, for me, was just a a reset, a refocus. Let's get excited to be back on the ice. And for us, getting back to the briar was huge. It's probably as big for us in our season as getting to the trial was. So I really wanted to be in the right headspace to try try and do that again. As mentioned, your team participated in two high-pressure national events already this season, having competed at both the pre-trials and the trials. How much do you believe that experience will help you at this year's Briar and moving forward into the next cycle? Oh, I think huge. You know, last year the Briar really didn't go as good as we would have liked, um, and we've had the conversation as a team that I'm not sure the trials would have went as good as it did for us this year had we not experienced that last year, and I feel like the Briar last year and then the trials this year is going to help us in the Briar again this year and hopefully it can help us four years from now as we chase down another trial. You need to put it all into perspective though. I mean, going to the Olympics, of course, is the number one goal above all else of things you could do in curling. There's lots of other really cool stuff that we haven't done yet, like make a playoffs in a Briar and win a Briar and go to a world championship. And for me, that stuff's also quite important. So You can't put all your eggs in one basket because you can go to the trials and play your heart out as good as you can and you still might not win and then you've got to sort of sit on that for four years. This will be your second consecutive Briar appearance, but this time you've had the same lineup for a year and a half. Do you feel like you're a much more cohesive team than you were entering last year's Briar? Oh, for sure. Um, Last year when Darren came in, I thought he did an exceptional job right off the bat to fit in. 
I mean, we were playing in the Briar as a team, and we had only been together maybe a month and a half, two months. <laughs> and that's uh, certainly not ideal. So we just had another year to sort of gel as a team and figure out what's going to make us different, as opposed to Darren just plotting into what the three of us have been doing forever. Uh, so I think we're a little more unique in our approach, and we've developed a few things, and we're much more cohesive as a team than we were a year ago. And finally, Brandon, what are going to be the keys for Team Bautry if you're going to make a run at the championship pool and be in the mix come the playoffs at the Briar? The biggest thing for us is uh, to just stick together on and off the ice. We need to, it's a process, and there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs and there's going to be some things that didn't go quite as well as we thought they might, and we need to talk about them, we need to figure out what we're going to do differently, and then we need to park them. And through all that, we need to stick together as a team as well as we can. Uh, it's a long week, even in this new format, it's a long week. So we got we got to rest and recover and do all those things properly and just take care of ourselves. And otherwise, I think we're in a really good place to perform well and hopefully make a deep run. Our final guest this week is Brett Gallant. He's the second for Team Gushu, the reigning Briar champions who will look to defend their title while wearing the Maple Leaf as Team Canada at this year's Briar in Regina. Brett, I can appreciate that uh, you would have much preferred being at the Olympics, but that aside, how helpful do you think the rest you've had over the past several weeks will help your team at the Briar after what had been a fairly hectic first half of the season for your team, especially since each member of your team also played in the mixed doubles trials? Yeah, we were uh, we were pretty fatigued, I guess, uh, come mid-January after we just finished our third week playing in a row. We played the mixed doubles trials and the Continental Cup and the and a grand slam all in January, back to back to back. So following that, we just took a took a little bit of a break. We took a week or two off, and um, for the last four weeks, we've been we've been training like we normally would, leading up to a uh, a major event. So uh, the preparation's been going really well. Um, we feel like we're just kind of where we want to be heading into uh, the Briar. Rest is always nice in such a hectic season, but by the time your team will arrive at the Briar, you'll have not played a meaningful game in about six weeks. Is there a part of you that would have preferred getting a bond spiel in somewhere between the end of the Canadian Open Slam and the Briar? Yeah, I guess it's somewhat, somewhat of a concern. Um, you know, we would have definitely preferred to have played an event, uh, you know, maybe two weeks before the Briar or three weeks before the Briar, but, um, you know, it's just not the case. And, you know, we've kind of been used to that the last couple of years. Our playdowns have been um, five weeks before the Briar even begins. So we're used to having that month off. I think the key for us is just, um, you know, we're trying to simulate some games in, in practice and, uh, you know, do a lot of team shots to make sure we're, you know, kind of practicing and playing the shots in practice as we would in the game, which, which is going to benefit us. And, uh, yeah, the key is just to you know, try to try to get off to a good start at the Briar. We kind of got off to a slow start last year and, Got off to a bit of a slow start in the month of trials, so just trying to avoid that and just make sure we're sharp right out of the gate because, especially with the way the new format is, you, you don't want to you don't want to get a couple losses early because um, then when you get to the championship pool, you're kind of coming from behind. So the fast start would be nice, and uh, you know the way we've been practicing, we we're, you know, we're pretty confident we you know the layoff shouldn't affect us too much. Does the mindset of your team change at all at the Briar now that you've won that first title and that you have a better idea of what the winning recipe might be in that event? And also, will you be feeling less pressure than last year or simply a different kind of pressure as Team Canada? Yeah, well, I mean, last year was the first time for all of us. So um, I'm sure there's a little bit of a monkey off our backs. I mean, uh, it was, of course, a, a little bit longer for Mark and Brad, who've been, you know, been almost 15 years, but it definitely relieves a little bit of pressure to win that first one. 
you know, we enjoy having the maple leaf on our back. I think that's going to be pretty neat to experience the briar from that from that perspective. I don't think it adds much pressure for us. Um, you know, we're still going there to perform for ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we put a bit of pressure on ourselves to perform, and I think just looking forward to uh, having the maple leaf on your back. It's kind of a nice privilege to have, and um, trying to come back and defend your title, that's uh, that's pretty cool too, you, you know. It's tough enough to win one, but so you have a chance to defend it. That's kind of special, too. What did your team learn about yourselves and about the Briar last year as you were winning for the first time that you'll be able to take it to this year's event in Regina? It's tough. Like, you know, even even I think we've learned just as much in, in losing, you know, in the playoffs and a couple of years prior to winning um, that you really need to get to the playoffs and then you need to play well when you get there. And you probably still need a, a couple of little breaks when in the playoffs to, to win the whole thing. And we felt we played really good in the playoffs the, the years, uh, the year previous, and we just didn't get the win. Um, so last year to, you know, to play up to our capabilities and to get the win, you know, I think it, it was a bit of a relief. You know, we, we just, we just knew we, if we play our game, you know, we're going to get our opportunities. We're not going to win every year. That's for sure. It's, it's a tough spiel to win, but um, you know, we just keep doing the right things, doing what we've been doing. Um, you know, we're going to have a chance, you know, hopefully at the end of the week. And you got to get the playoffs first. So that's our, our first goal to start any Briars to try to get in the playoffs and then um, just see where it goes from there. Your year as the reigning Briar champion is about to come to an end. Can you perhaps share one or two of the highlights of that year outside of winning the Briar in the first place and then winning at Worlds? You know, it, it didn't change our year too significantly. Um, you know, cool thing, you know, we got to play in the Continental Cup. <laughs> the only problem is when you're playing the Continental Cup during an Olympic year, you know, 10 of the 12 teams are going on to the Olympics. And when you're not one of them, it's a bit of a bummer because uh, everybody else is, is so excited and rightfully so to be to be heading there. And, and uh, of course, we were a little bit bummed out having just lost our, you know, both, both the trials and the mixed doubles. So, But overall, it was it was a fun event to be a part of. You know, you get to play as a bigger team and, and, and that aspect was really cool. Um, from everything else, it was... Uh, was pretty similar. It was it was great to sit back and and watch the Newfoundland Provincials from the from the sidelines and just uh, you know watch the competition. It was really competitive event and you know took in a lot of games there and just to see the uh, you know the thrill for the for Greg Smith's team when they won. I mean it was pretty cool to to see you know heading your first briar. You kind of forget uh, sometimes what that feels like, but to see it in them, it was it was pretty cool. And finally, Brett, I can't let you go without asking you about your dad and how well the South Korean women's team that he coaches did at the Olympics, winning the silver medal. Yeah, really, really cool. You know, we, we were talking, you know, a little bit back and forth. It's kind of time, the time zone's a bit tricky, but uh, I was certainly following all their games. I, I kind of knew going in the Olympics what their record was against a lot of the Olympic teams, and, you know, they've, they've had a lot of success against most of the international teams. Uh, you, you don't see them a lot in North America because they typically play a lot in Europe and Asia. And only get to North America, you know, a few times a year. But I think they've they've played a lot of those international teams quite a bit. Have some confidence against them, and you know, they they kind of went in and performed right up to their capabilities, and even probably exceeded expectations given the circumstance, hometown pressure, and everything like that. They were uh, they're a pretty cool, calm team, and they they just really uh, you know they really played well. And um, you know, when when Dad joined the team, they were they were a really solid team, but you know, they they weren't as consistent as, as probably they needed to be to you know, to get on the podium at an Olympics or a world world championship and, you know, just, just fine tuning and getting a little bit better at strategy and things like that is kind of where dad helped them. And, you know, he's taken a really good team and, you know, made them, uh, you know, just a little bit better and kind of gotten them maybe to the next stage. So um, it's pretty cool to see my dad do that. I, you know, I, I know firsthand what kind of a good coach he is. Uh, maybe I should have listened to him a little bit more when I was younger, <laughs> but uh, 
no, he did a great job and, uh, you know, something to be proud of. And I'm, you know, did a lot for, for curling in, in Korea, just the, the way the team performed there. I mean, it's uh, pretty cool I think, to see the numbers that their, their semifinal game got on TV between, you know, Korea and Japan. You know, the people that probably watched curling for the first time that week is probably in the in the millions of millions. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. And to be a part of that, uh, that's awesome for him. And that does it for episode 26 of the From the Hack podcast. My thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at From the Hack and follow our Facebook page. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.